0: Well, we are still going in our series in Genesis. We're back in chapter 17, and if you don't remember or weren't here last week, to begin, we covered the beginning of chapter 17, which is really the beginning of a three-chapter-long story. Uh, one story that basically continues on through chapters 17, 18, and 19. At the beginning of chapter 17, God changes Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham, and he gives him the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And so as we pick up in verse 15, uh, God is continuing to speak. So let's start there. Chapter 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. I'm going to skip down a bit. There's a recounting of Abraham following through on the, on the sign of the covenant to circumcise the males in the family. And we'll start back in the beginning of chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? He said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God's given us his word that we we can know him, that we can rest in him, be refreshed in him, and renewed for our calling. So let's pray that God would speak to us. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, that you've not left us to our own imaginings, but instead you tell us everything we need for life and godliness in you. So speak to us this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. A uh, few years ago, on his podcast "Revisionist History," Malcolm Gladwell recounted the curious history of Elvis Presley singing "Are You Lonesome Tonight." Do you know the song? Some of you may know this. It's an old ballad. I mean, it's it's all. It, I think it was written in the 1920s. And uh, of course, through the song, the singer is singing to this to this woman, "Are you lonely?" Uh, Of course, meaning that he, of course, would be happy uh, to comfort her. But then the strangest thing, and what really makes the song dated when you listen to it, is in the, you know, I don't know, two-thirds of the way through the song, there's an interlude where he talks over the music. Um, But of course, what's revealed when he talks is that he's actually the one who's lonely. And she had left him. Now, Elvis didn't want to record this, but Colonel Parker, his manager, it was his wife's favorite song. It was the only song the colonel ever asked Elvis to record. He could barely get through the recordings. Eventually, he had to come in in the middle of the night with all the lights off in the studio to get a clean take. And there are 10 live recordings of this song of Elvis trying to sing it. And I say trying because he can never get through it. He always, when he gets to the talking point, he always starts laughing. I mean, there's YouTube videos of this you can watch later. To, but uh, particularly after, there's one or two recordings before 1962, but in 1962, Priscilla left Elvis. And whenever he tried to sing the song afterwards, I mean, completely falls apart, starts laughing hysterically. Whenever he tries to sing this song, it, there's, you can listen to the Malcolm Gladwell podcast. If you want to dive into all of what's going on. But the point is simply this. We think of laughter as being pretty simple. We laugh at what's funny. Of course, as you get a little older, you learn the difference between laughing with somebody and laughing at somebody. right? And you start to realize that there can be a kind of dark side to laughter and then of course as you get older you start to realize that we laugh sometimes in order to avoid what we don't want to deal with and that's what's going on in this story I think the story of what's happening here can be seen clearly through the different ways people laugh there is a laughter of disbelief there's a laughter of deflection, and then there's a laughter of delight. Disbelief, deflection, and delight. Of course, it is Abraham who laughs in disbelief. You know, God, God's met him, and he tells him about this sign of the covenant, and it all seems to be kind of, okay, this is good, this is good. You may remember back in chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah had come up with this plan to finally produce an heir. They followed what was an ancient Near Eastern custom of when a woman couldn't have children, her servant would be brought in as a second wife, essentially. And so Ishmael has come out of that situation. And it's not really clear until this moment that Abraham actually understands that that wasn't what God wanted. Thirteen years later... Let that sink in for just a minute. Ishmael's 13. For 13 years, I'm not saying that Abraham didn't realize that he wasn't supposed to do it that way, but I think he thought, well, this is, you know, we, we solved the problem of producing an heir, and this is, so everything's going as planned. And then God shows up and says, well, actually, that wasn't my plan at all. And now Abraham's 99. At the beginning of the chapter, we're told he's 99. He rounds up to 100 Uh, in this this moment. Of course, if they have a kid by that time, he will be 100. But, uh, you know, he's he's, he's, like, I'm 100. Sarah's 90. That's crazy. Like, it's really, like... That's just crazy. You know, I mean, you don't have to know much to know that that doesn't really happy, happen. You know, you barely know anybody now that gets to 90. And then to imagine someone with a newborn. I mean, this is just, you know, it's just over the top. And, and Abraham's thinking, like, and for 13 years, I've been thinking that this was the plan. And he obviously loves Ishmael, right? I mean, he, he, he wants God to. To bless Ishmael, to bring him into the covenant, to make his covenant with him, and God does look out for him. God does continue to provide for Ishmael, but that is not God's plan. God has a different plan. God's plans were different, and Abraham has a hard time coming to terms with it. He is laughing in disbelief because he just can't believe that this is this is the plan. It's over the top. It's outrageous. He's laughing in disbelief. And I think that this is a hallmark of so many of our struggles with the Lord. Again, whether you're a Christian and you are fully convinced of all of it, or you know if you're on the fence, if you're exploring it, is the fact that God has different plans than we do. And our plans often don't work out the way that we wanted them to. I mean it happens i mean hasn't the last year and a half been about changing plans all the time? Right? I know some of you had like travel plans that got canceled, like big travel plans. I mean, our family is talking has been talking a little bit about the holidays, right and we 've got you know just like, well who's going to travel, and i don't know you know like where is a vaccine for the kids going to be out? By, you know, and all, this, all these different questions, right? Everything seems so up in the air. And we have short-term plans that we've made for our lives. We have long-term plans that we've made for our lives. And it's not just the events, right? The events are not usually the biggest thing. It's about what we think you know, about our plans, right? That they're going to change my life. They're going to enrich me in some way. Or... I've earned the right to do this, to have a good time, to go on this trip, to take a break, whatever, whatever the, you fill in the blank. <laughs> I've earned the right to do this. And our plans then are always much more than simply about getting from point A to point B. They are about who we think we are, what we value, what we want to be. And they also expose our presumptions, right? We, we think that we understand when we make our plans about life. We think we understand the scope of who all will be affected. And we're often wrong. We think we understand, even the people that we do know are involved, we think we understand them and what effect it will have on them. we're often wrong we think we understand our own motives and we're often wrong we think that we understand what the parameters are what limitations are in play and we're often wrong But that's also part of the good news. We're often wrong. God has more options than we know. God has other plans. And is anything too hard for God? God has other plans. God doesn't have some of our plans in mind. Some of them will get derailed. Not all of them. (laughs) But always, inevitably, some of our plans get derailed. God has other things for us to do. God has other people for us to be engaged with. God has other places to take us than where we thought we were going to go. And look, I'm not saying we should always presume on miracles, but I am saying we should always count on the character of God. He has options. He has a plan. He will see it through. In that sense, the gospel then is really a comedy in the classical sense. Now, the Emmys were a few weeks ago. I don't know if you keep track of that sort of thing. And there's kind of two broad categories they have. They have drama and they have comedy. And by and large, what that means is big, heavy, weighty emotions and lighthearted emotions. <laughs> a little messy, I know. But that, by and large, that seems to be what we mean by that. In the classical world, they thought about how you, do, how you described a story by the trajectory of the story, where it was going. And there were three main categories. There was tragedy, which of course was a story of sorrow and loss. There was satire, which was about critiquing. And then there was comedy, which was about a happy ending, a story that ended well, at least for the, the main characters. And that's what I mean. The gospel is a comedy. Not because it's, it's full of haha moments, although there are plenty of those, usually at our expense. but because the ending we know is good. We know that it works out in the end. It's not a comedy in the sense that it is all lighthearted emotions. In fact, the story goes through some very dark places. Some of us are found by this story in very dark places. But where it is taking us is to joy the end point of all of it is joy. That's why joy is a characteristic in the New Testament of the Christian, right? Not because the Christian's always having a good time. Not because all their plans are working out just as they thought they would. And boy, isn't this great. No. Not that at all. It is the confidence of where this story is going. That even when our plans go awry, Even when God makes it clear that He's got a different path than the one we thought we had carved out, that the end is good, that we are in God's hands, and He is really steering our story towards what is good. If you're stuck in that place of disbelief this morning, struggling with the change in plans that's going on in your life, that's the confidence we have is not, a, not to convince ourselves, oh boy, but we really are supposed to have it that way. But rather that whatever this change in direction is, is, is for good. For those who love the Lord. He's watching over us. But there's also Sarah's laughter, which is different. I don't know if you picked that up. Here, but while Abraham laughs in disbelief, Sarah is deflecting. Uh, This whole passage that we read began in chapter 17 with God changing Sarah's name. Uh, This is, it's kind of interesting. There's no clear change in meaning. The word means princess. Uh, Sarai is probably a more archaic form, and Sarah was a more updated. Name for, you know, the mid-2nd millennium B.C. But uh, it's not really the change in the meaning of the name that matters here, right? But like Abraham, God was laying claim on her life. He had her life in his hands. And later, I don't know if Abraham had told Sarah about the promise of Isaac or not. Did you notice that? There's a little time that passes in what we had, you know, the the part of the passage I skipped. (laughs) Obviously a little time has passed in between here, and God shows back up to pick the conversation back up where he left off. And Sarah's listening at the door. And she hears about Isaac, and she starts to laugh. Now, in, obviously, the same kind of absurdities that Abraham felt are obvious to her, right? She's post-menopausal. Abraham's extremely old. Like, this isn't, it's not how this works, God. But there's something more to it. In her words in verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Shall I enjoy this? You get the implication, I hope, about the joy that was missed for so long. This is somebody who is framing her laughter around what she has missed out on her whole life. You can feel her bitterness in that. She laughs rather than to feel the anger at God. Now, after having to endure the shame of being a woman who cannot have children in the ancient world, for all my adult life. The modern world's not so different than that. After having to endure that shame for so long, after having to have years of disappointment, decades of disappointment, after making that choice, that mistake with sending Hagar to be with Abraham, After all of that, you're going to give me a son now? Can you sense how bitter she is? She laughs to mask it, to deflect it, to deflect her anger, her bitterness. You see, because it's not merely that sometimes God has different plans for us. That's part of what we get frustrated with but another side is when the plans change sometimes we lose something we've dreamed about. Sometimes there's a loss when God shows up and has a different plan and that is hard. That It's one of the hardest lessons to learn, and some people never learn it. It's probably true about just maturity in general, but it is certainly true about spiritual maturity. It is a hard lesson to learn that we have to choose what is best over what is good. You know what I mean by that? There's a lot of good things we can do in life. There's lots of great things to do. And you know what? There may be things that you kind of dream about doing, and other people do them. <laughs> Get to, they have those opportunities. But this is about choosing what's best. Recognizing what's best. And maturity is this hard lesson that there are sometimes we have to lose some of what we've dreamed about. For the best thing. That kind of choice leads us to choose others over self. The more that we understand this, right, the easier it is to understand that we need to choose others over ourselves. Now, I know as soon as you say that, of course, some people are afraid. Don't I just lose myself and all that? And there is a right kind of self-care, but there's a lot of our self-care talk in the modern world that is simply selfishness. Biblically, we, we, self-care is about being the kind of person that can love God and love others over the long term. That doesn't burn out. Immaturity means choosing God even over others, which is one of the hard lessons in life. It is a sober truth, you see, because there, there are, we are told all the time that we can have all the things that we want. I mean, it's just kind of basic to our advertising age, but it is also implicit in the message of, that many Christians receive, that if you have really, if you really trust God, He will give you what you want. But I've got news for you, that is not the voice of the Lord. Because Jesus says that if anyone comes after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. God never promises all those things. One of the theologians in the 17th century, a guy named John Owen, talks about this maturity process, and he puts it this way. He says, in the early days of faith, the streams seem to flow in green pastures, and the new Christian seems always fresh and green in the ways of grace and holiness. But later in the Christian life, it seems good to God to turn the stream into another channel. get away from the green pastures. He sees the exercise of humility, godly sorrow, fear of God, diligent warring with temptations and all the things that strike at the root of faith and love. All those things are now more needed. You see, when we're confronted with what we must lose, it gives us at least two things. It gives us the wisdom to distinguish what is best from what is good. And this is, simply, this is simply the reality, until you face a choice, our hearts are not really set. I mean, more often than not, it is not till we actually have to choose between things that would be good, to be fine and of themselves, and what is best, that it becomes clear in our minds. It is not until we have to actually choose between myself and others that I see that clearly for what it is. It is not until I have to choose between God and listening to Him and following Him, choosing time with Him, that I learn the distinction between what it means to love God over others. You see, God in his wisdom will take some things away so that we learn to choose what is best. And this is a very hard truth to learn. I'm not saying it's easy. It was not easy for Sarah. But the other thing that it teaches us is a sacrificial heart. I mentioned, I think, a little while back, the another podcast it's called "The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill," which is in Christianity Today has been running about a, a kind of evangelical megachurch that had a pretty spectacular collapse. Um, and one of the guys on the staff told his story in a recent episode about when he when he started to realize what was going on. And he was on staff, and he was traveling with the celebrity pastor who was leading the church, uh, they were abroad, I think they were, they were in London, and he got an eye infection that was pretty severe, and he could hardly see. And he ends up at breakfast with the celebrity pastor that he's traveling with, his pastor, and another pastor of a large church in London. And uh, the pastor of the church in London was very concerned about him and the celebrity guy that he's with has an agenda for the day and goes on, does all that thing, all those things. And the pastor of the church in London clears his schedule, takes this guy to a clinic, to get him medication and all the things that he needs so that he can heal. And that night, got a call from another staff member to make sure that he wasn't infectious because the celebrity pastor didn't want to get what he got and have his schedule derailed. And you can see the difference, right? One sacrificed his time, and the other didn't. You see, we hate the idea of having to sacrifice, but we want to be with people that are actually sacrificial, I don't want to sacrifice the things that I love and the things that I think I need and deserve. But I want to be with those that do. That would sacrifice for me. You see, the beauty of a sacrificial disposition is impossible to overstate because a sacrificial disposition is the very heart of God himself. A sacrificial disposition is the way God loves. Because isn't that the story of the gospel? I guess that gets us to the laughter of delight. Uh, God comes back. He, he, he goes and he, he comes back and but manifests himself in a way. There's three people that show up. Now, there's a long history of Christian interpretation that sees this as a prefiguring of the Trinity in some way, although by the end of the chapter and the beginning of the next chapter, it's pretty clear that two of these are angels. Um, although one of them is still a theophany, a, still a, revel, <laughs> a prefiguration of God and, uh, in the flesh in some way. Abraham realizes he's God right away, so I'm, it's not exactly incognito here, but Abraham gets the honor of hosting God for a feast. Uh, Commentators say that this is still a lot like what would happen in Bedouin tribes in the Middle East. Is that if somebody showed up who was honored, you know, you you would essentially take on the role of a servant. You see Abraham standing there nearby, right? He doesn't sit down with them to share the meal. He waits on them. Abraham is a servant. And as they're finishing their meal, God wants to talk about laughter. He wants to talk about Isaac. That's what the name means. And you know, the funniest thing, when Isaac does arrive in a few chapters later, and we will read this in depth more, in chapter 21, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. She laughs again, but it's changed. It's delight. It's excitement. In fact, she's, she jokes that everybody else is going to laugh, too, when they hear this story. Sarah's bitterness has turned to joy. And it is, of course, through this sun of laughter is son of the promise, that the promise is completely fulfilled. Because we are waiting, you know, I, okay, Abraham and Sarah have a boy. At the end of the story, no. The whole point of calling Abraham and Isaac was to redeem the whole world. And yet when Abraham's great, 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 I don't know how many great, grandson arrives, the one that will fulfill all that is promised in the covenant, when Jesus arrives. He is not a man of laughter, but a man of sorrows. The completion of God's covenant is achieved when another miraculous birth happens, right? This, not, this time, not an older woman who can no longer have kids, but a younger woman who is not yet married, when another miraculous birth happens to fulfill the covenant, the one who was born is a man of sorrows. Not because Jesus was super sober all the time. Really serious, buttoned up guy. He cracks jokes. I mean, I don't know, you know. He has some sense of humor, at least. I don't know, but because the task of redeeming us Meant enduring our sin, taking on all the sorrows of death, being swallowed by death itself. But here is the thing Jesus was a man of sorrows because he was motivated by joy. This is what Hebrews 12 tells us. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is because Jesus actually was full of joy that he endured the sorrows that it took to redeem us. And I feel like saying endured the sorrows is underselling it. It me- it meant taking on all of the sin of his people. It meant enduring being cut off from the love of the father. It meant entering into death itself. But you see, the more that we understand the heart of Jesus for us, that it is out of his joy and out of his love that he underwent all those sorrows, the more that we understand our own lives more clearly, the more we can actually laugh with the light of what's going on in our own lives. Not because there isn't something painful going on. Not because our plans didn't get derailed. Yeah, yeah like we said, our plans are going to get derailed. Not because there aren't losses, there will be losses. But because we know that the end is not just a promised ending, but it is a guaranteed ending. It is guaranteed in the body and blood of Jesus. The joy that awaits us is not a hypothetical, it's not a thing we are just crossing our fingers and hoping happens. It is a thing that is guaranteed because Jesus has been raised from the dead. So death has been broken, and sin has been paid for, and those who are in Jesus have no fear for what lies ahead tomorrow. We shouldn't have no fear to admit what fools we've been. We can laugh at ourselves and laugh at our plans. We can endure even the losses knowing that what lies ahead is the light and life and love of God. Abraham got the privilege of hosting a feast for God, but what we're told is the end is a feast itself that God lays for us. The supper, when we partake in it, is just a down payment, a promise of the feast that lies ahead. That feast is promised to us. So, what, what are you dealing with this morning? What plans of yours are coming off the rails? What are you angry with God about that you feel like He's taken from you? You may not be wrong that there's a change in plans and you may not be wrong that God is asking you to give up something but what you must remember is that that is not the end of the story and the proof of it is written on the palms of Jesus' hands the hands that are holding you up even now And ask yourself, is anything too hard for the Lord? Father, we thank you that nothing is too hard for you. That all of our hopes and dreams are not nearly as interesting or significant as what you have planned in our lives. And that all that we have to lay aside whatever that may be in our individual lives, Lord. Teach us to count those losses as gains for the sake of knowing you. Lord, we pray that you would lead us into joy and happiness and delight in you. We thank you that that promise is ours, not merely, not merely for today, but for eternity, that we will be with you that we will feast with you and with all of your people. Indeed, with the whole creation that is renewed. Remind us of this. Give us joy and delight in Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.